Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's such a joy, just like it was last month, to be able to share our second value with you. And we have three. And so I'm just going to kind of jump right in. If you missed the last one, I'll be alluding to it, but you're welcome to listen to that as well. This is a three-part series that we're going through, one each month. And as I look out at all of you, I, I know so many of your faces, but some of you we haven't met yet. So a little bit about myself. Um, married to my husband, Charles. He's here right now. And we have two kids, my daughter, Gloria, who's three and a half, and my son, Judah, who just turned a year old. And it's been interesting this past year to go through the baby phase again with our son Judah and to, to experience all of the different milestones all over again. But I was struck by one thing as I was preparing this message. Have you ever noticed with babies, when they look at you, it's almost impossible to look away? They smile at you and all of a sudden you transform and you want to keep that gaze and you'll make a high-pitched voice and you'll say goo goo ga ga and anything to keep them smiling and laughing and looking at you. But the interesting thing about that is that that's not on accident because part of how babies are created, part of how they attach and grow is through eye contact. They'll look deeply into the eyes of their caregiver and that's what helps their brain to develop because actually after they're born in the first year of life, a third of the baby's brain develops because of those meaningful interactions, because of that attachment, because of that growth that's happening in those moments. But I wonder if it's not just babies. I think that we all long to be seen. Beginning with birth in that first year of life, but also all the way to the end of life that we long to be seen. And you can think of seeing like this. It would be to fully notice, hear, and engage with another human being. So in other words, it would be to see things from their perspective, to walk in their shoes. That would be this immersive form of seeing. And I think seeing is also very closely linked to feeling loved. And you see these messages throughout our culture, right? You see it in the pop songs, you see it in advertisements, the stories that we'll tell to each other, even the way that our families, uh, how we were raised and our families of origin. A lot of this is see me, notice me, love me. And we even think about Adam and Eve in the garden. When they, in Genesis 2, we see that picture where they are fully themselves before God and they're fully seen, and they had no shame. Can you imagine what that would feel like? So my question for you today is this, as we begin. Do you feel seen? But I wonder if there's actually a deeper question within that. And it's this, do you know how to see? I have a friend, and we met a few years ago after my daughter Gloria was born and we would spend a lot of time together uh, as our kids were the same age. And she found out that I attended here at Reality Santa Barbara and she immediately said, I just want you to know I have no problem with Jesus. I said, okay. She said, but I really don't like Christians. And I'm wincing even as I'm saying that because it's so uncomfortable to voice that elephant that's in the room. But why do Christians have such a bad reputation? And maybe you felt it, maybe you feel it at work if you don't want people to know that about you. Maybe you feel it with your neighbors. 
Maybe you feel it even with family. So what's wrong? And I wonder if at times that we've learned to look away. We've lost the ability to see people and to also be seen on a deep level. Even with that friend, when she voiced that, I didn't feel seen by her. I felt like I was lumped into a category. An assumption was made instead of me as a person. And I also struggled to want to know and understand when she said that statement, like, what's the reason behind that? What's the experience that you went through that shaped that perspective? So I wonder if we've learned to look away. Maybe we've traded the right perspective for the right answers. Or maybe we've learned to compartmentalize our love of God and our love of each other. This is an uncomfortable topic. I don't know if you feel it as you're sitting there, but I sure do. But the part that is comforting is that it's not just us, because we actually see this in Scripture, and Jesus calls out that tendency to look away as well. And if you were with us last time, we looked at Luke 10, 27. So turn with me now again. We're going to resume that story and pick up where we left off last time with the wholehearted value. We have this, this expert in the law that's coming to test Jesus, and he asks him, you know, what's, what's the way to eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you tell me. And he says, well, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus continues this on after that moment, and, and he, he goes into a story to illustrate this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. Read with me now from verse 30. Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Let's pause right there. In order to avoid seeing this man in need, they passed by to the other side. And if that's not a cringeworthy story, I don't know what is. Think about this. That was the religious institution of the day in that country. This was a religious leader, and not only that, it was a priest. Someone whose responsibility was to create space for people to encounter and to be able to approach the presence of God. And he passed by to the other side. Seeing is uncomfortable. What makes it so difficult for us to see what's right in front of us so often? And there's a few things that come to mind. And the first would be self-preservation. If I enter into your space, then I could lose something. I could lose my reputation, my time, my limited energy, my safety. If I see you, I might have to do something about what I see, and I don't know if I have time or energy to do that. But also, if I let you enter my space and see me, I also might have to change something. Seeing is very risky. I think about my daughter, Gloria. She has this habit now when we go to the grocery store or out on a walk, and We'll just have strangers walk by us or push their cart by us. And she goes, hey, what's your name? And I'm like, whoa. (laughs) And so usually, like, that's the reaction. And then they'll say their name, you know, Sarah. And she goes, 
And if they have glasses on, she says, let me see your eyes. I'm like, can you not? <laughs> but it's so interesting to be in those settings because as we've been doing that, I realize my tendency to not look people in the eyes, to want to just push my cart on by, get my groceries done. I only have 20 minutes. We have to get to here. And I don't even see the people right on the path next to me, but my daughter, who's three, she does. She has no inhibition. She's not afraid. She's totally open to them being a person right in front of her. And it's been very challenging for me because it's pushed up against a lot of my tendency to self-preservation. Seeing is risky. But I think the second thing that makes it hard to see is shame. Because if I see you, think about these religious leaders in the story. If I see you, I might become unclean. That's going to violate something in me to fully see you and your mess. But also, if you see me, you might see my shame and my mess and the real version of me behind this mask that I so often put on so that I can control the way that others perceive me. Seeing, I might see something shameful in you, and if I let you see me, you might see something shameful in me. Seeing others can ache deep inside. And finally, I think the thing that gets in the way of seeing is assumptions. If you look like that, if you talk like that, if you act like that, then you must be fill in the blank. Right? It's so hard to see the person that's right in front of us because we're caught up in what we think they represent, whether that's the way that you vote, the way that you parent, the type of work that you're in, how many children you have, you know, what's your socioeconomic status. We get so caught up in categorizing that it's almost impossible at times to see the person that we're actually talking to. Like a Samaritan. Look with me now as we continue the story in verse 33. It says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And let's just pause because talk about assumptions. A Samaritan in normal story for the Jewish people would be the arch enemy, right? He's equivalent to just the worst person that you could think of for that people as they're listening to it. So as you hear this story, just imagine when you hear the word Samaritan, like picture the person that stabbed you in the back and their family. You know, that would be the intensity of what that would evoke in the listeners as they heard the story. So this Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. What does this Samaritan do in this story? He sees this man who is naked, beaten, lying on the road, half dead. This is a disruptive text. These Samaritans were hated, yet Jesus places the Samaritan as the hero of the story, not the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus is flipping over their assumptions and highlighting this radical act of what? Of seeing of fully noticing and entering into someone else's space, regardless of the history, the assumptions, the hate, the shame, the self-preservation. He's highlighting the person in the story who simply sees. But it's not just that. 
Jesus goes on to say in this story, that's a true neighbor. And if that doesn't give you something to hope for, that a Samaritan can be the hero of the story, this is a disruptive text. But as you hear that, you might go, okay, well, this is just a story that Jesus was using to illustrate. Did it, you know, this is just a parable. But look at the storyteller himself, because this act of seeing, Jesus models it himself in how he interacts with so many different people, starting with his own disciples. You know, he's Nathaniel, as he comes up to him, he's like, I saw you under the fig tree. And behold, here's an Israelite who's without deceit. He sees him, he sees right to his heart. You know, the rest of his disciples, he's like, drop your nets, follow me. You know, he sees something that someone else did not. The people themselves, these great crowds, think about when, when Jesus uh, fed the 5,000, he looks up and he sees this great crowd coming towards him. So he turns to Philip and he says, hey, we need to find some bread. Where are we gonna find bread for these people to eat? Because he's able to see these people just as they are, that they're coming, but they have needs. They're hungry. Same with children. Jesus sees children as they're being turned away by the disciples, and he says, no, let them come to me, even though they're overlooked in society. They're not important, but let them come to me. See it with women as well. The Samaritan woman, when Jesus meets her at the well, and he sees everything she's ever done, and yet look at who he invites and says, drink of the living water, and guess who's the first person to go and get to preach the good news to this city in Samaria? It's the person whose secrets Jesus just laid out because Jesus sees her as a person. But even the Pharisees, he sees them too. It says in Mark 35, after looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus can see the Pharisees right where they're at, and he's grieved at what he sees. That's what's so radical about the kingdom of Jesus is that Jesus is able to fully see people right where they're at, and yet he also can fully love them. Think about the rich young ruler. You know, he's like, I've done everything that's ever been asked. And Jesus looks at him and he loves him as he says, well, go and sell everything you have knowing the cost is too high. But yet he loves him in that moment. Even the crowds, seeing the people, it says in Matthew 9, 36, he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees people in their cluelessness, in their hunger, in their possibility, in their helplessness, even their self-righteousness, in their distress. He fully sees people, and yet he is still able at the same time to fully love. And another way of saying this might be, if we all long to be seen, but we've learned to look away, Jesus has new vision. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Because Jesus sees us. He fully sees us. We are fully seen, yet fully loved because of the gospel just like we always have longed for since birth. And this is the gospel, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What a sign of God's love and graciousness to us. He sent his own son to enter into our mess, 
to meet us right where we're at in all of our trying, the masks we might put on, the assumptions that we make, the shame that we carry. He meets us right there in that mess and he says, guess what, I fully see your mess and I fully love you. And he offers us this hope of life. He said, just come and believe, repent and believe like you have been saved. Do you know how much you are loved by God? Because we can't go any farther today without that being so clear. Do you know how much you are loved by God? Think about it. What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? He meets you right here where you're at, in your weakness, in your inadequacy, in your job loss. He meets you in the mistakes that you just made, in the anxiety you're carrying, in the uncertainty you have as you look at the future. He meets you in your marriage. He meets you in your singleness. He meets you in your parenting. Even your mistreatment, your rejection, your suffering, he's right there. Your politics, in this country, in Santa Barbara, in this world, in the state that it's in, Jesus is right here offering this invitation, saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord? Do you know how much you are loved by God? You are fully seen, flaws and all, and fully loved. But it doesn't stop there. We have this new vision that Jesus has in a world of people longing to be seen, but it gets better. Not only that, Jesus has come to restore us to something better. He sees us and he loves us. He meets us where we're at, but he doesn't leave us there. He invites us in to something better. He has come that you may have life and you may have it to the fullest. He's come to invite you to something more. It's a vision that he has that only sees us, but looks ahead to what could be, to the restoration, to the life to the now but not yet that we're living in right now as we're longing for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. It's a gospel for the world. It's a gospel of restoration. And it sounds great to hear that, but we all know that that can be really easy to miss because there's some misconceptions that we hold about grace that I often experience myself or hear. First of all, grace is permission to sin. But Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So think of it like this. Grace is not permission to sin. It's the power of Jesus to overcome sin. Think of all the adulterous woman as her accusers walk away after this dramatic scene that's set with Jesus riding in the sand. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? And he said, well, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. The second misconception about grace that we often see is there are no consequences. But if God is the creator of the world, we see in this world, there's cause and effect. It's part of how the world is built. 
and I fully receive God's grace, but there's many times that I'm still going to have consequences for the choices that I've made. And finally, the, the final misconception that makes it hard to fully understand the picture of grace is that grace leaves us where we're at. That this whole looking back, I, I'm saved, but now what? You know, what's next? But it tells us in Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So grace does not leave us where we are. Do you hear that? It's, it teaches us to say no. We're able to stand up and say, no, I'm going to walk forward in the grace of God. Jesus comes, think about that, he comes to give a new vision to look ahead of true, abundant life, of grace that sees, but also restories our broken lives around relationship with him. And that's part of the beauty of this new vision that Jesus extends, that we are not only seen, loved, invited to more, but he also invites us to no longer look away. He invites us to take on that sight as well and fully see. We are given sight just as we have been seen. We're invited to full reconciliation. If we, if we tended to that looking away, that shame, Jesus says, you no longer have to compartmentalize loving God and loving people. You no longer have to look away. This is a grace that extends to the whole world. It's a gospel of reconciliation. And that's what 2 Corinthians tells us. It said God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has given us the message of reconciliation. Think back to our original story. Continue on with me, verse 37. Actually, verse... 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because of the lavish, absurd grace of God that has been given to us, fully seen, fully loved by God, we can extend that same grace to others. We also can fully see and fully love people and long for full transformation, for full reconciliation in our relationships. And our way of saying that here at Reality Santa Barbara is gracious. And gracious means meeting people where they're at. We meet each other where we're at, and we invite each other to something higher. Gracious is meeting each other where we're at and inviting each other to something higher. So if wholehearted, as, as we learned last time, that value of wholehearted is showing up with all of my heart, my mind, my strength, then think of it like this. Gracious would be part two. 
So wholehearted, I show up with all of my heart, mind, and strength, not as I think that I should, but as I actually am. Gracious is extending that same invitation to others, to meet each other where we're at, not where we think that each other should be. So think of it like this, wholehearted begins within, and gracious is that extension to the neighbor, to the person that you're around, to each other. It's the second piece of these values. It's the second movement of the Holy Spirit that we see and are experiencing together in this space. And gracious is such a winsome quality when you think about it. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Salt arouses thirst. It's winsome and engaging. Think about salt like it brings out the best in a dish, right? So if I'm gonna be like salt, like I wanna look at you, I'm gonna bring out the best that I see in you. That, that changes the way that you approach conversations. It changes the way that you see others. I love how the message puts it, that same verse in Colossians. It says, make the most of every opportunity. Be gracious in your speech. The goal is to bring out the best in others in a conversation, not put them down, not cut them out. It's such a different way of seeing than how so many of us were taught to see others. I'm gonna look for your best. And in some ways, it is a childlike posture. Even as I think about my daughter, Gloria, that children come with such an openness to see people just as they are. They're not coming in with the assumptions, with the pressures, with the baggage. It's just, I'm open to listening. Even if I don't actually agree, I'm not gonna take that identity on. It's such an open posture and a willingness to engage with others. So gracious is meeting each other where we are, but it's not just that. It's inviting each other to something higher and to do that without losing ourselves in the process. Wholehearted and gracious. Like look at the Samaritan in this story that Jesus tells. Does he bring this man home with him? Does he take him on his journey, care for him along the way, not continue on at all and, and have his whole life be consumed? in caring for this man? Does he set up a nonprofit to serve travelers who are attacked on this road? No. He fully sees him, meets him where he's at in his need and his helplessness, and sets him up to become whole again while maintaining the sense of self. And this was his enemy even. We are a people that are so loved by God that we can meet each other where we are. We are a people so loved by God that we can invite each other to something higher. Think about it like raising a child. You don't raise them so that they'll stay a baby forever. The hope is that they will grow and mature into who they were intended to be. We are a people so loved by God that we can meet each other where we're at and invite each other to something higher. And as I thought about how to, to illustrate this to you, I think there's no better way than with a story as I begin to close. Several years ago, before we moved to Santa Barbara, I worked in integrative medicine at a hospital in Denver. And I was a therapeutic musician and my specialty was acute care. So I worked at the bedside in ICU uh, with patients who had acute pain and trauma. And one night at the end of my shift, I got a call from a nurse. 
And I was surprised. It wasn't a nurse who usually gave me referrals. And she said, hey, I need you to come down. I've tried everything else. There's nothing left to do. So I went down to the floor. And as soon as I got on the floor, I could hear screaming. So I went over to the room. And they said, this patient, is, their pain is out of control. But they've already maxed out their medication. They only have, you know, this much time before they're allowed to have more medication, but the pain has gotten the better of them, and she's just so afraid. And, and I didn't know the full scope of, you know, everything that they tried, but what I did know is that there was a woman with so much fear and so much pain right in front of me. So I went to her bedside, and I began to play. I play the harp. And there is a process that's used with therapeutic music called entrainment. And entrainment is where there's two systems that have a rhythmic nature to them, and rhythmic would be a regularly occurring beat. So obviously, a live acoustic instrument is a rhythmic object. But what people don't often think about is that so is the body. The heart beats at a regular rate, so it's considered a rhythmic instrument. And the heart can entrain with the music if the music is at a set, regular pace. So oftentimes with therapeutic music, you will use music to help a patient come to a place of healing and of peace in their body. But with this patient, she's screaming. Her shoulders were hunched, her face was scrunched together, she, tears were pouring out of her eyes, her body was shaking, she was screaming at the top of her lungs. So in order to entrain with her, I began to play at the same tempo as what her screaming was. And I played high frequency notes. I played fast, loud music because I had to meet her where she was at in that moment. So I began to play and I would play and just match her and watch her body as it would begin to change as the music entrained with her body. And then slowly but surely I watched and her face began to relax a little bit. Her screaming got a little bit quieter. And gradually, I slowed the pace of the music. The notes became softer and lower. And I watched as her shoulders came down fully. Her eyes closed. Her screaming stopped. And she fell asleep. And we landed at the resting human heart rate, which is about 60 beats per minute, and I just played this soft music for her as her heart was entrained to the beat of the music. But could I have started that way? If I felt like I knew where she needed to be, could I start that way and say, this is where you need to be, come meet me here? No. It was the entrainment and being able to fully meet her where she was at with the skills and the strengths that I had to offer. And we together walked through that process. And I can't help but have it remind me of here. Right here and now, we're creating space to follow Jesus. And this is how we do that, by meeting each other where we are, meeting each other in our pain, in our joy, in our relational depth that we long for, allowing, if you will, 
our hearts and our lives to entrain with one another's and moving together towards wholeness. But maybe right now as you hear that, you go, well, it's risky. It just sounds exhausting, and I've already been hurt so many times. You know what? Me too. I feel that too. But what would this look like? Imagine with me. This is what our hearts have longed for since birth. And imagine what that would look like, a community of people who create space to follow Jesus, and they do that openly, honestly, with vulnerability and depth and a willingness to take a risk, a willingness to get hurt, to get their hands messy. I don't know about you, but that's a place that I would like to be a part of. And when I look around at you, I see that longing too. So as I close, and I'll just ask Joseph to come up, we're gonna respond together. And would you accept with me again, as we sing this phrase, as we sing about the name of God, we sing to him and sing it over each other, would you allow that to shape your heart? To accept again, or maybe like you never have before, the lavish, absurd grace of God. Fully seen, fully loved, And the best part is that we get to do it here together. Kneeling alongside one another on the carpets, receiving prayer in the back. If you, there's no words and you just long and there's something that you just want intercession for, to take communion together, to take of the bread and remember the new covenant and the new vision that Jesus has given us. And allow the words that we know are true to wash over you. But also, as we go out today, some of us to the picnic afterwards, but also just into our lives and relationships, I'd invite you to practice and begin with listening. Listening is so closely linked to loving that the two are almost indistinguishable. Professor David Osberger says that being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. And when you think about it, Jesus serves as a beautiful model of listening because he left his world, which is what we do when we listen to others. He entered into our world, which is what we do. We enter someone's world as we listen to them. But he held on to himself because when we listen, it doesn't mean that we have to agree with what's being said, but you don't have to agree in order to hear. And he hung between two worlds, this fully God and fully man. And I may not like what I hear when I listen, but I will embrace the tension between our two perspectives. So I'd invite you today to simply listen. And as we close, I'm gonna give you a question to ask God. And take this into this week and into our service next week. This is actually the title of my sermon. And that's, where are you? Where are you right now? Maybe you want to say it like this, God, where am I? Maybe listen to his voice 
and receive again his love and the fresh vision of the gospel.